0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of Ruth. Ruth is a little book in the Old Testament containing only 85 verses in total. But despite its short length, it contains not only the story of what God did in Ruth's life, but it also points to the beautiful redemption story that God is working in all of our lives. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in.
1: If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to Ruth chapter 4? Ruth chapter 4, as we conclude this morning, our short study through this short yet amazing little book um, in our t- Old Testament. And just uh, because I can and because it's the last week, and if you weren't here, I just want to give us a little review or just kind of an overview of each chapter to catch us up to speed. You know, in chapter 1, we saw a couple of weeks ago, chapter 1 was really all about decisions, if you remember that. In that chapter, we saw several people make make very important decisions um, for their lives. You have Elimelech. God is King. That's what his name means. Um, he's living in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, the house of bread. And there's a famine. There's a famine going on in Israel, and so Elimelech makes a decision to take him and his family to travel from Bethlehem to go to the land of Moab. And Moab, we know and we saw, is a picture of the world. Moab, um, the Lord called it the washbowl in the Psalms, a um, very dirty place, a very immoral place. This was a place that God's people should have never been to, never spent much time in. They didn't worship God. They didn't value. The things of the Lord. And this is where Elimelech decides to take his family. Why did he want to go there? He wanted to survive the famine. He wanted his family to survive the famine. And what we see is that he takes his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Chilion. The two sons end up marrying Moabite women. They stay there for what we would say maybe 10 years, maybe longer. And then the one thing that this family did not want to happen. Death happens. Elimelech dies, and not just Elimelech, but both of his sons end up dying. And so you're kind of left there in chapter 1 with three widows. You have Naomi, which is Elimelech's wife. You have Orpah, and you have Ruth, Naomi's daughters in law and then we saw another decision. This one was Naomi, right? And we've been saying it every week. Naomi de- came to her senses and she decided, okay, life stinks and life is not going according to my plans. I'm going I'm to go back to Bethlehem. I hear the famine's over. I'm going to go back to the house of bread. I don't belong here in Moab. I belong back with my people, with the people of God. And, and so she decides to go back. But she says to, to her two daughters-in-law, like, you guys should stay here, though. Like you guys are from Moab, you guys have family here, you have friends here, you know the culture here, you appreciate the food here, whatever, and so we saw the next decision. You have Orpah. Orpah decided to stay, and she decided to go back with her family and to the gods of of the Moabites, and then you have another decision, this time was Ruth. Ruth decided not to stay. Ruth decided, no, 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 like she just loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, so much. And she decided to go back with Naomi. Like Naomi, where she says, where you go, Naomi, I'm going to go. Where you stay, Naomi, I'm going to stay. Your God, Naomi, will be my God. And so we see chapter 1 ends with Naomi and Ruth entering into Bethlehem again. They're poor. They've been through a lot. It's been a hard season on them both. They don't know what's going to await them, right? That's how we ended chapter one. They are just doing anything and everything to survive. Chapter 2, we get there, we saw the amazing providential hand of God providing for these two widows, right? They both know that they need um, help in finding provision to survive. And in that day, remember that the welfare system of Israel was that of gleaning. And so in the, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of unknowing, like when and where provision was going to come from, then we saw Ruth starting to experience what we call those just so happy events right it just so happens that she she lands at the field of this guy named Boaz and it just so happened that he was a kind man a generous man and just so like I can just keep going on and on but what we see again when when you and I follow Jesus and we and we seek to honor him with our lives that there are no coincidence with the Lord Things just don't happen, but really it's the providential hand of God. Remember J. Vernon McGee said, providence is the unseen rudder on the ship. And that's what the Lord is in our lives. And so it wasn't by accident that Ruth ends up in this field at this time. It doesn't, it's not by accident that Boaz happened to come to this one of his many fields, no doubt, at, on this day, at this time, and notice Ruth. Why? Because God's providential hand is carrying these ordinary people through to carry out his bigger plan. And as I mentioned, Boaz is a kinsman. And it kind of sets up this whole idea, which is really the overall picture and theme of the book of Ruth of the kinsman redeemer. You see, what God this is what God had established in Israel, that when a, a piece of property was either sold or lost, and that could be because of debt or bankruptcy or death, that the nearest kinsman had the opportunity to buy it back. Or to redeem it in order to keep it in the family name. And so God created this this way for a near kinsman. They would call him the kinsman redeemer. That he could come and, and have the opportunity to buy it back, if you will. But here's the criteria to be a kinsman redeemer. You had to be the nearest kinsman, right? Secondly, you had to be able. You had to have the finances, Right? In order to buy back, so you had to be able to afford it. And thirdly, you had to be willing. You had to have it in your heart. You had to be willing. And so Naomi is realizing that Boaz is a, is a near kinsman. And he's, he's been showing a lot of interest in Ruth, a lot of kindness we saw in chapter 2. Just a beautiful picture of just his kindness um, towards Ruth. And then that took us to chapter 3 that we looked at last week where we saw that very awkward, strange marriage proposal. <laughs> and we saw that Naomi, she's, you know, she's witnessing just the kindness of Boaz. And so she comes up with this plan that on the night that Boaz would be at the threshing floor, that she instructs Ruth to, to sneak into the threshing floor um, when he goes to sleep, to take his blanket like, and remove it from his feet and to lay down at his feet. And it is kind of awkward in our culture. Um, and so when he wakes up, she says, he'll know what to do, right? And basically what Ruth was doing is saying, Boaz, like, you've shown, I've noticed you, you've shown all this interest in me. If you're willing to marry me, like, I'm interested. And, and so that's the focus of chapter 3. Ruth is essentially proposing that Boaz propose. And, that, and when she says this, he's like, yeah, like, Ruth, I'm in, like, I am, I'm for this, like, I didn't think you'd be interested in me, like, I'm way older than you, you could have gone out for, like, a, 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 a younger, more handsome guy or whatever, but, but, but then he says, but wait, Ruth, there's a problem, right? There's a kinsman that's nearer than me, and according to the law, according to the custom, he has the first dibs, if you will, and this is where we left off. Boaz is willing, but he needs to first check with this other guy. Ruth 3.13, we saw last week, remain this night, he says to Ruth. And when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. In other words, Boaz is telling Ruth a very beautiful thing. Like either way, Ruth, you're getting redeemed. Like, either way, like one way or the other, your days of being empty are over. And that brings us this morning to chapter four, where the theme is redemption. Now, the term buy, you'll notice in your Bibles, buy or redeem or redemption are used over 15 times in this chapter alone. And in this chapter, we're going to once again see that Boaz is this amazing Old Testament picture of Jesus who redeems something, who, who, who pays a price in order to, to provide ultimate freedom, to set something free. And so with that, look at with me, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And so he said, come over here, friend, sit down here. And he came over and he sat down. Pause right there. Now, I want you to picture, as I mentioned last week, the, the gates, the entry gates of, a, of an ancient city. As I've, I mentioned again last week, the city gates were kind of their, their town hall, if you will. This was city hall. Um, this is where legal matters were, took place and were disputed. And this is where court was held. And so Boaz, he goes to the entrance of the city. There's the most traffic there. The most amount of people are there. The elders um, would position themselves there. And it just so happened that this other redeemer walks by. And he says, come here, friend, and sit down. Verse 2. Then he took ten men. Of the elders of the city and said, "Sit down here." And so they sat down. And so this gives us more insight into who Boaz, the type of man that Boaz was. He was a man who who took charge. He was he was a leader. He had influence in the city. He he starts calling the shots. He gathers the elders together. And Boaz, he's he's an honorable man. He's a godly businessman, if you will. Verse three, and he said to the redeemer. Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, has to sell the plot of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought that I would inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one except you to redeem it, and I am after you. In other words, this is what Boaz is doing. He's like, look, this land needs to be redeemed. And they've fallen on hard times. And and they need a family member to to buy it back. And and you have the first right of refusal. Now, Notice how this guy responds at the end of verse 4. He says, I will redeem it. Sounds good. It's very emphatic in the Hebrew. Like, right away, he stands. like, sounds great. Where do I sign? I'll take it. And he's probably thinking, we don't know much, we don't know anything about this guy. So, um, speculation would say he's, he's probably thinking, Naomi's old, she's past the years of childbearing, so if I buy this field, my assets are just going to cr- increase. My portfolio is just going to grow. This is a a great business deal. This is a a no-brainer. And so he's like, you got it, Boaz. Like, I will redeem it. And as you're reading this, all of the hopeless romantics of us here in the room are like, no, right? That's not how it's supposed to end. (laughs) We've been watching kind of this this love story unfold, and we're picking out wedding dresses for, for Ruth. And, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to end up. Don't do this. But listen. I'm a huge fan of Hallmark movies. This is way better than a Hallmark movie, okay? But this is kind of the course a Hallmark movie takes. You're right? like, no, don't worry, it gets better. Verse 5, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The inheritance. You like how just Boaz just slips that one in there. He's like, here's the land. Oh, it sounds good. Oh, by the way, verse six. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, otherwise, I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, since I cannot redeem it. Here's the deal: this guy, he's initially thinking about his assets, right? The more land, right? The more land, the more value. He's probably thinking, he, I already have all of my inheritance divided up between my kids. This land is gonna sweeten the pot for them. They're gonna be really stoked. However... For him to take responsibility for Ruth would, to, would complicate things for him, would, would just make matters really sticky. And he says, no, thank you. Like, okay, if that's part of the deal, I'm going to pass. You know, my portfolio is already set and I don't want to mess anything up. Well, Boaz, why don't you redeem it? Now, this guy, we don't know his name. Again, we don't know much about him. Is only interested in the field, not the bride. Boaz, on the other hand, he could care less about the field. He's got many fields, right? But he, I want you to see that he's interested in the bride. He's interested in Ruth. And isn't that just a beautiful picture of Jesus? You know, in in Matthew's gospel, we're, we're told of this story that Jesus tells about a man who's walking through a field one day. Like this is just what my where my mind went when I'm reading this. Walking through a field, and he discovers in this field a, a vi- like he just stumbles upon this treasure in this field. And so he goes out and he's like, "Man, this treasure is amazing! Like, I need this treasure." So he goes out and he buys this field so he can get the treasure. Jesus said this: the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and he buys that field church. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to redeem you and I. He came to redeem the world. And it wasn't because, you know, he was bored and needed another planet, right? Like he didn't but because he saw that the treasure of the world that that was you and I, and he says, I love them. I want the bride. There, there, There is something that has separated me from them, and I want them in relationship with me, so I'm going to redeem the world to get the treasure. And it's this beautiful picture that we see here. Now remember, to be the kinsman, you had to be a near kinsman, right? You had, to be the, uh, you had to be able. You had to be financially able. You had to be willing. You had to have the heart. And, and we've seen throughout the whole, this whole book that Boaz is this foreshadow. He's this picture of Jesus in, in this regard. You think Boaz, he was a near kinsman. And Jesus is our nearest kinsman. That's what we see. He's called, we're told, he's called the second Adam, the second only perfect man. You know, Adam fell, but Jesus there, he succeeded. Boaz was able financially to redeem Ruth. He could afford it. In Jesus' church this morning, he was able to redeem us because he was sinless. He he became a man just like us. The Bible says that he was tempted in every single way as you and I are, yet he never sinned. He was sinless. He knew what it was like to live in our shoes, to be in our skin. He knew, Jesus knew what it was like to live a hard day, what it was like to be rejected, to go hungry, to experience sorrow and grief. He went through it all, but without sin. And for that, he could be the sinless sacrifice. He could, he could, he was able to redeem us. Boaz was willing, and Jesus was willing. You know, I think of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of, Prince of Preachers. He said, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And listen, Jesus saw you and I as the treasure in the field and came to redeem us because he loved us and wanted us part of his family. Jesus wanted the bride. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. That a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the way of confirmation in Israel. And so the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Now, if you were here last week, you gotta be asking yourself, what's up with the Bible and sandals? Like this is weird, all right? We looked at that Deuteronomy passage last week, but but what's happening here? I know it sounds crazy, it's a strange little practice of handing some guy your sandal, but the taking off of the sandal signified a method of legalizing a transaction. You know, we think about uh, official paperwork. You know, if I'm going to create a will, I'm going on a trip later this week, and if, if I'm going internationally, I like to make sure my will is, is kind of dialed in so my kids are well cared for in case something bad were, were to happen to my wife and I. So, but what do I need to do? I need to have that will notarized, right? Like you need to have it before witnesses and all of those things. And so in essence, he's saying, like, I have your shoe, and this signifies again that the deal is set. This is a receipt. This is a stamp of that that a transaction has taken place here. And verse nine, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, "You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahlon. Furthermore." I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be eliminated from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Here's what Boaz is saying. He says, I will buy the land. I will care for Naomi. I will marry Ruth. I will honor her dead husband. We will have a, a child and the firstborn um, son of Boaz and Ruth would, would belong to Malon's family line and so, so that it wouldn't die off. And Boaz is essentially saying, here's what it boils down to, I will fix everything. I'm going to fix everything. And listen, again, as we were singing that song um, just a little bit ago about the blood of Jesus, this is, it was just reminding me, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Elimelech made a mess of things when he went out to the world, when he went out to Moab. He and his family died, but Boaz here is coming to fix it. And Adam, if you go all the way back to the garden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know, Adam made a mess of everything. Adam decided to rebel. He decided to do things his own way, to eat of the forbidden tree, and Sin entered the world and not just affected Adam, but it went through the whole human race. And we've all been affected by his sin. And the Bible says that sin separates us from God himself. But listen, the good news this morning is that Jesus came to fix everything. Amen? Jesus came to right every wrong that Adam made. And I love this about Boaz. That Boaz here, this is a side note, if you will, this morning, that Boaz is willing to invest in the bigger plan of God. I want you to notice that. That God set this plan in motion for a way that a family can be preserved. And Boaz says, I am willing to do that. I'm willing to kind of to sacrifice like my first son carrying on my family name for this. Why? Because he wants the bride. Now, he has no idea what God would have in store for this child. But he's willing, to, he's willing to do it. He's willing to invest in the bigger plan of God because he wants the bride. And again, just a side note. I know this morning, and I want to be very careful with this. I know you and I, we don't relate to Boaz here, okay? If we're ever going to insert ourselves into the picture of the book of Ruth, we don't identify as Boaz. But I do think there are some helpful tips and helpful things, I think, for us to glean from, from his life. That I think we need, even for my own life, more of this in our lives. Being willing to invest in the bigger plan of God. Because if we're honest, if I'm honest with you, so often we have the tendency to say, like, if this doesn't benefit me. If I don't get like, a re- good return on investment, I don't want to be involved. And so and so often when it comes to investing in the kingdom of God, the Bible says you might not see a, a return on your investment here on this earth, but you're going to an eternity. Again, we don't live for today. We live for a different day. We don't live for the kingdom of, of this world. We live for a different kingdom. And so I'm just thinking about, about um, Boaz and just just living and just living his life for the bigger plans of God. It's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourselves for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where neither or, or thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God's just so much, I think, wants his people, wants you and I to be willing to say, you know what, Lord, like, I want to invest in what you're doing. Like, I want to be all in. I'm, I, want to, I want to invest in your bigger plan here, not my small earthly kingdom, right? That's not what the Lord is, is interested in. That's not what he has for us. But I want to, Lord, I want to invest it in it. I want to serve and I want to give towards what you're doing. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter if it benefits me right now. It doesn't matter if I get praise, if I get a good return on investment. No, no, no. And like, Lord, I just want to be all in for you. And so Boaz, he's willing to trust the Lord. He's willing to invest in the ways of God. And so he says, I will redeem it. I will help carry on the family name. And we're going to talk more about that family name in just a little bit. And here comes the blessing, though, verse 11 from the elders of the city. They're watching all of this go down. And all of the the people who were in the court and the elders, they said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Now remember, if Rachel and Leah, were there, they were the two wives of Jacob, Right? And, and together, if you include the midwives, they, they bore 13 children. And Jacob's sons would, would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what they're referring to. May you be fruitful. They're just praying this blessing on them. That you may, may you have, you know, as many children as Rachel and Leah did. May you have a fruitful house. And then they said in verse 12, very interesting verse. Moreover... May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the descendants whom the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, we got to talk about this one in more detail than last week, because this is an interesting story. If you weren't here with us last week, I'll catch you up to speed, because if, if, if you're, you're reading this and you know briefly about this, you have to ask yourself, why would they bring this story up here? Like, why would this be a, a blessing? You know, Genesis 38 tells us the story of um, Judah. And Judah had a daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar married one of Judah's sons. And, and before, um, that, before she could have a child with that son, the son ended up dying. And so, again, the custom in the land would be the next son in line. And so Judah tags his second born son and says, tag, you're it. Like you got to marry Tamar and, and carry on the family line. Well, that son ended up dying too. And so Judah, he decides like, Hey, this guy, this gal's cursed. Like I, I love my daughter-in-law, but I don't, you know, she, she's kind of killing me here literally. Like, and so, um, <laughs> sorry. And so, um, he's like, I'm done. I'm done giving you my sons. Right. And Tamar's kind of left in, in the, in the dirt. And, and, and so, um, Judah ends up going on on a business trip, if you will. Judah's like going on a business trip and and Tamar's kind of starting to take matters into her own hands and, and she's kind of freaking out. So she goes ahead to the city where she's going to disguise herself as a prostitute. Maybe she knows something about her father-in-law that he might be interested. And so um, she dresses as a prostitute. And sure enough, he sees her. It's probably dark. She probably has a veil. Um, He doesn't recognize her. And he goes in. He picks her up, sleeps with her. And after the deed is done, right, after they have their one-night stand, if you will, he says, like, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. I can't pay you. And so what ends up happening is he gives her his signet ring, he gives her his staff and says, hey, next time I'm back in in town for business, I will pay you and you'll return those things to me. And so he goes back home, she goes back home, and then Tamar discovers that she's pregnant with her father-in-law's child and and, uh, is exactly what she was hoping to happen. And so then Judah finds out that his unwed Widowed daughter-in-law is pregnant, like again, out of wedlock, and he has no idea that she's the prostitute that he slept with. He gets super mad, super self-righteous, and he's like, She needs to be judged because you know, to be pregnant out of wedlock in that culture was not a good thing. And so he's like gathering all the elders together, like, we need to judge her. And and they're like, Who, who, you know, who's the man who, you know, got you pregnant? So she says, Well, I can tell you who the man is. It's the man who's Signet ring, this is. It's the man whose staff this is, and Judah's like busted. Busted, right? Like, oh. And he knew, he realized I'm the guy and it's me. And so they have a son, and they 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 from this relationship and they they named him Perez. And so here's the question though. Why would the elders of Bethlehem, that as they're blessing Boaz and Ruth, why would they bring up this story? Why would they say, we hope that you're like Tamar and Judah and Perez? Like Seems a little twisted, right? I mean, this is an ugly story. Genesis 38 is very ugly. It is an embarrassment to your family tree. And listen, from this relationship of Tamar and Judah actually comes twins. You have Zerah and Perez. But listen, the the line of Perez was fruitful in producing most of the Bethlehemites. All of these people. That were there that day, the elders of the city, all um, Boaz, who's there, Naomi, the family of elimelech they're all there. Why? Because of the encounter that took place between Tamar and Judah. And listen, church, this is just a, a, this is another visual, an important visual that God can make beauty from ashes. And in the book of Ruth, there's been a lot of despair that we've seen. There's been a lot of sin. There's been a lot of death. There's been a lot of ashes, but God is going to bring beauty from it because God is a restorer of the broken, is he not? Can we say amen to that? And that's what they're referring to here. So, so in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and, she, and he had relations with her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you one who restores life and sustains your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. So here we see God just blessing Ruth and Boaz. But also Naomi. Naomi gets blessed as well. She, she now has a grandson. We're told that she's able to nurse him. She's able to care for him. Verse 17, and the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so they, they give this child the name Obed. And Obed means servant. And this little boy would be a, grow up to be an incredible blessing. He would. He would be a blessing to Bethlehem. This, the, the child would bring fame to both the family name and the name of his native town. Right? You think about this. Elimelech's name was getting ready to go obsolete. Right? It was going out of date because of his sin. Because, um, and, or he would become famous because of his sin. Like we know him now. But now his family name, his family line would be carried out. And Obed was also going to be a blessing to Naomi. We see there. In verse sixteen, she got to care for him. Obed would be a blessing to Israel. You know, as we saw here in verse seventeen, that he would be the great grandfather of King David, Israel's greatest king. Obed would be bring blessing to the whole world. Because through his line, we're going to see here shortly, the Messiah, Jesus, would be born. 1,200 years later, Jesus would come from this line, from this village to be the Savior of the world. Bethlehem means house of bread, right? And I just can't think of it. Like Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And Jesus, the bread of life, the one who has come to sustain and to fill the souls of just hungry men, would be born right here in the house of bread. And it would be from this very family line. Isn't that neat? It's an amazing picture of how God can take the broken things in our lives and turn them around for good. Beauty from ashes. Now, the chapter ends and the book ends by giving us the the genealogy of Perez, which is really the genealogy of Jesus. Again, we have this genealogy here in verses 18 through 21 or 22. Again, Perez, his parents were Tamar and Judah, Judah, father and daughter-in-law. Not good, right? That's where this comes from. And now these are the generations of Perez. Verse 18, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered uh, Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon. Now check this out. This is crazy, okay? If you don't know this, this is getting crazy. He marries a gal named Rahab, right? Rahab the prostitute. You guys remember when the the children of Israel, they were going through the land of Canaan, they come to Jericho, and they sent spies to go check out the land of Jericho, and this gal, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, she hides the spies, and because of that, God spared her as the city was going to be destroyed, and her family and herself, they were grafted into the children of Israel. Well, this guy, Solomon, he ends up, at some point, he ends up falling in love with Rahab, the former prostitute, and check this out Rahab is Boaz's mom. Isn't that crazy? Been kind of waiting like four weeks to tell you guys that if you didn't know that already, right? Like, this is amazing. This church, this is the family line of Jesus Christ. So, Salmon, who married this former prostitute, Rahab, fathered Boaz, and Boaz, who marries Ruth the Moabitess, right? This gal from a pagan background, a a place of great sexual immorality. She's come to Israel. She marries Boaz. They together, they fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, if you were to do a mental turn, it'll be on the screen here. Matthew chapter one, you have the genealogy of David, or Jesus, and David, it just kind of picks up. David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You guys, this is the family line and the family tree of Jesus. You think your family has a crazy background, right? I mean, this is crazy. In 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 the family line of Jesus, you have incest, you have prostitution, you have racial division, you have adultery, you have murder. Isn't that crazy? This is this is the family of Jesus, like, yep, I'm gonna become, I'm gonna come from that family line. And I and I can't help but think of the book of Hebrews where it tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Isn't that amazing? That this is his family tree, and he's like, I'm not ashamed of you. Some of you, you you might have family trees that you're ashamed of. You're like, we don't talk about Uncle so-and-so, right? Like, we just kind of forget about him, right? And Jesus, it's not the same way with you and I. He's not ashamed of you. So what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about God? Number one, we have three things that I think this tells us about God. Number one is that God is not afraid of messy. God is not afraid of messy. We don't pick our relatives, right? We just get them. We're kind of stuck with our siblings, right? We're stunk with uncle so-and-so. But Jesus, church, picked us. And these people in his family line, again, Jesus picks. He knows exactly that this is the family tree that's going to lead to his birth. And it just reminds us that God is not afraid of our mess, but rather he picks it. He steps into it with us and for us to be able to redeem us from it. And listen, no matter the mess, no matter the mess, Jesus can clean it up. And once again, let me say it one more time, he can bring beauty from ashes. Amen? Secondly, the past doesn't have to be the end of the story. That we can rise up with the help of the grace of Jesus from the ashes. We can have a new chapter written. We don't have to be defined by our past. Some of you, your, your past is defining you. You're Rahab the prostitute, right? Just fill in your name. You're Ruth the Moabitess. You can have a brand new start to your story with Jesus. And we don't have to even allow our past to be like an excuse for bad behavior. In other words, we don't have to be victims anymore, that we can live a life with Jesus that has redemptive value. I want you to know Jesus can redeem every single part of your life. Thirdly, this tells us that Jesus came to save sinners. In fact, in Matthew 11, he's called the friend of sinners. Think about that. None of the religious leaders were called that. They might have been called like the judge of sinners, right? But Jesus is called the friend of sinners. In fact, I love the story in Matthew's gospel when when Matthew the tax collector gets saved, right? He was a Jew who who turned on his own people to collect money and, and he worked for the people that the Jews hated the most, which is the Romans, right? And so he chose to be a tax collector. He comes and he, extort, he extorts, he steals, he takes money from his own people. And so tax collectors were hated, they were despised, they were considered traitors, the scum of the earth, according to the Jews. And one day, Jesus just walks up to Matthew's tax booth and he says to them, Matthew, I'm calling you, come follow me. They just love that? And he did. He left what he did. He left his job and he began to follow Jesus. And the, one of the first things that Matthew does is he throws this huge party. He, he, he invites all of his tax collector friends that everyone hates, right? And he invites a lot of the other people from the community. And Jesus is there. Maybe the, the rest of the other disciples are there. Jesus is smack dab in the middle. Jesus is not preaching. Right Jesus isn't confronting sin issues. Jesus isn't saying, "Hey, you guys should really quit your job and start working for us." or whatever. You know, He doesn't say any of that, but the religious leaders, they're looking at this party, they're looking at where Jesus is hanging out, and they're freaking out. They're like, "If this guy really thinks he's a prophet, like why the heck would he be hanging out with those people? Because this is what they thought. We don't go anywhere near them. They're dirty, they're messed up, they're unclean. They're sinful. And we don't want to dirty ourselves. And so they're watching this and they're asking, why is Jesus in the middle of all of this, Of all of these sinners? And Luke gives us the answer when he says this. And then the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are healthy, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And church, this reveals to us so much of Jesus. He doesn't see just good and bad. Right? He doesn't just see right and wrong. He's not, just, he's not a moralist, right? He sees sick and he sees healthy. I think of the words of Leonard Ravenhill. And he says, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's why Jesus came. And here's the reality this morning as we close, that we are all sick. Every single one of us. Because of Adam's sin and failure in the garden, it affected every single one of us this morning. And the Bible says that as sinners, we have been separated from a holy God. That we have all missed the mark. That's what it means to sin, to fall short, to miss the mark of God's holy standard of perfection. But listen, this is why Jesus came. He came to fix everything. That Jesus left heaven. He came to earth on a what we call a rescue mission. I think that's, that's the term in the Jesus storybook Bible that I've read to my kids. Jesus came on the great rescue mission. Or to borrow the words from the book of Ruth, Jesus came to redeem us. He came into the world, went through all of the things that we we go through, but he did it flawlessly. Not so he can rub it in our face and say, like, see, I did it. You You know, strengthen yourself and rise up to the occasion. No, no, no. He did it because he knew we could never do it. He did it so that he can be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, dying in our place to bring us back to the Father, to reconcile us to God so our sin can be forgiven and our guilt can be removed and so that the righteousness of Jesus can be applied to us. The cross of Jesus Christ is a completed work. And listen, if you're reliving the failures of yesterday, if you're reliving the failures of last month or last week, you're missing the good news of the gospel. Pastor Nathan, in our time this morning, we were praying. He was just praying that how often we need to hear the gospel proclaimed and preached to ourselves like every single day. And for some of us, many times a day. That we need to live in and recount that yet we were sinful and undeserving. That Jesus did what we could not do and he has redeemed us. And so we, we're missing the gospel if we're just living in our past and our failures and our shortcomings. We need to be reminded that in Jesus we've been redeemed. That in Jesus we've been set free. And the genealogy of Jesus says, look, I am doing something new. The genealogy of Jesus says, look, I take that which is broken, not that which is perfect on the outside, that which is broken, and I make it new, and I adopt it into my family. Isn't that good news? And listen, this morning, if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus and you're not a part of the family of God, you haven't embraced him as your kinsman, redeemer, if you haven't recognized that, man, I am a sinner. And I'm in need of a savior that you can do that right now. You can be redeemed. You can open up your heart and just say, yes, I am a sinner. I need Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's teaching. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times and location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccscportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.